a gun in the face. Then all of a sudden, they all kind of lined up. They pointed their guns at me. And this is the point where I thought, I'm going to die today. Started two years of horror for an American in Venezuela. They said, you need to give us your phone and get ready because you're coming with us. I'm Becky Bruce, and I spent a year researching and piecing together Josh and Tammy Holt's story about their ordeal in a notorious prison. That's when everything started to turn bad. We had another pound on the door. Boom, boom, boom. And there was the police once again. You can binge all of the episodes of Hope in Darkness on kslpodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for joining us on this week's edition of Utah Weekly Forum. I'm your host, Rebecca Cressman, and the week of February 21st is Eating Disorder Awareness Week. And we're fortunate that our guest today is a psychiatrist with the Huntsman Mental Health Institute, Dr. Kristen Francis. We're going to talk about the different types of eating disorders and underscore the treatability of this. Dr. Francis, welcome. Hey, Rebecca. Thanks for having me. You know, you always take complex issues and help us really understand how relatable that is to us and how treatable it is. So, Dr. Francis, just how common is it that someone in our life is struggling with an eating disorder? That's a great question. You know, the statistics definitely vary, but on average, 9% of the population will experience an eating disorder during their life. Most eating disorders develop prior to the age of 24. Um, There's usually kind of two distributions, meaning two clusters of when this disorder kind of comes out, and that's early adolescence, so kind of like right before 13, 14, and then again, like uh, kind of that transition to college, 18, 19, 20. Do we know why those two age groups uh, seem to have like the spikes in eating disorders at that time in their life? Yeah, so there's a lot of theories, you know, of why eating disorders um, you know, exist and why, why people suffer. And, and there's a huge support for genetic susceptibility, meaning you're born with uh, certain genes on your chromosomes uh, that make it more likely when you experience stress uh, for an eating disorder to come out. Um, you could also have uh, personality traits, you know, that are kind of genetically set um, that make you more vulnerable to developing an eating disorder if you start to diet. So both of those times in our society um, and a lot of societies, those are kind of transitional periods, usually to puberty and then to kind of the transition into adulthood. Um, there are still a lot of biologic effects uh, during that that transition as well with final brain development. Um, But it's really a combination of both a genetic predisposition, um, about 60% of it being genetics, and then um, kind of the rest being an environmental stress. I should ask you to, if you don't mind, describe what an eating disorder is. Because I want to say that in my lifetime, over the last 30 years or so, it's become more common for people to be aware of it, but not sure when we should be stepping in or what type of treatments might help, or even the difference between an eating disorder and dieting? Yeah, I love this question. Yeah, so anytime in psychiatry we diagnose someone with a disorder, it has to be a condition that is causing significant distress or impairment, so challenges functioning um, in your everyday life. So it can't just be something that's taking up some mental space or time. It has to be something that's 
a significant part of your day interfering with your work, your relationships, your ability to go to school or fulfill major roles. So a disorder, something transitions from being just an everyday part of your life to where it's a disorder if it's really getting, getting in the way of those things. So a lot of people diet, right? A lot of people try to change their weight and shape. And, and the message out there is that this is an effective thing to do, right? So you want to change your weight and shape, you diet. Then you'll be thin and everything will stay great. But statistically, that's not true. In fact, only about 5% of dieters, people who diet, are able to actually keep weight off in any five-year study. And, and so that's, that's pretty dismal statistics. So people, though, with eating disorders may try to diet and it just takes off for them. Like they're suddenly not in control and they can't, you know, stop how they're eating. They can't incorporate new foods. Uh, They likely get into a binge purge pattern, um, which is really common with restriction and dieting in general. Uh, The more you restrict food, the more you think about food and the more you want food. So um, that's how it's kind of different than dieting is that it's really a, a, a way of eating and managing your weight and shape that gets completely beyond your control and causes some really big problems. The problems can be in health or relationships. Yeah. You know, I've seen eating disorders firsthand in uh, my family. My niece was struggling yeah. a number of years ago with anorexia. They sought out treatment. She's doing so much better. But I remember watching her and she had what was like an absolute aversion or disgust towards food. It was very difficult for her to even look at it while it was in front of her on a plate. And that's when I learned, wow, there really is something much bigger psychologically that's happening that's really not within her control. Is that uh, common? Completely. A lot of people say, like, why can't you just eat? Or why can't you just make my child eat? And I let them know that um, when someone is in a restriction or starvation um, syndrome, there are other factors at play that actually their brain over time changes the way proteins are expressed in their bodies, which is really just a fancy way of saying like there are these epigenetic things that are impacting how someone reacts to food and it can actually make them not want to have food. Food can be repulsive. Um, Psychologically, food becomes scary because of the associated weight gain. Um, And it's really a complicated task to help someone recover in their eating. And you mentioned that it can cause a lot of problems. So what kind of uh, physical and mental complications or mental health complications occur when we have an eating disorder or can occur? Yep. So there's different categories of eating disorders or disruptions in eating that are, you know, really messing up with someone's life. Um, When we think of eating disorders, we tend to think of the most famous notable ones like anorexia nervosa, which is a primarily a restricting eating disorder where a person doesn't get enough calories or nourishment in order to um, keep their weight at their body's set point. So they classically present as underweight, although not always. Um, and there's a couple subsets of this. So you can have the restricting subtype or the binge purge. So a lot of people think if someone is purging or vomiting, they have bulimia nervosa, but that's not true. You can actually have anorexia and be purging. Um, and so with a restrictive eating disorder, most of most people um, get a slowed heart rate. Um, they tend to get cold very very easily. Their circulation is poor. Um, they can develop a fine downy 
hair all over their body. Um, they have a lot of problems with their bones and are at increased risk of fractures. Uh, most of them do not get their period and have a lot of fertility uh, problems later in life because of that. Um, if someone's on more of like a a bulimia nervosa, which is a, a kind of a famous eating disorder style where um, someone is eating somewhat seemingly normally, but then has cycles of restriction, uh, which leads to binging and then kind of compensatory behaviors of either purging or over-exercise. Um, they tend to have some problems from vomiting, um, including like uh, problems with their esophagus or problems with their stomach. Um, they can use laxatives sometimes and have problems with their lower, their lower intestines or even um, other parts of their body. Um, they, too, have problems with their, um, their bones. Um, and often people who compulsively exercise are at risk for stress fractures, um, kind of endurance uh, um, injuries that we think of with athletes. Um, so those are some of the more known uh, side effects. You know, I have a dear friend who has struggled with bulimia over the years. And part of her treatment included um, encouraging her to reach out to people she trusted and felt safe with if she felt like binging or eating in a really unhealthy way or even to call a friend afterwards. Because at that time, she would be filled with so much self-kind of disgust and so much heartbreaking shame. Yes. For those who've just joined us, we're talking to Dr. Kristen Francis. She's an incredible psychiatrist with the University of Utah Huntsman Mental Health Institute. And we're talking about eating disorders because there is treatment that's provided at the Huntsman Mental Health Institute. And uh, we do have an upcoming week, which is Eating Disorder Awareness Week. But the emotion that she was feeling, that is quite common, is it? Oh, so common. I I am so glad you brought this up because shame is usually the biggest barrier that people have uh, that prevents them from getting help. Um, so people feel so ashamed uh, by the, in both anorexia and uh, bulimia, by the kind of um, the problems that come. So they feel embarrassed that they might restrict and then overeat or binge and then feel like they need to overexercise or purge to get rid of the calories. And that makes their self-esteem feel, you know, really low. Um, I try to frame it in a way of like, if you hold your breath, then when you stop holding your breath, you naturally want to gasp and, and debrief. Like you want to get air and the same with restricting like restriction or not eating enough calories. When we, when we do that, we just think about food all the time. And all we want to do is, is eat and especially eat foods that are comforting and taste good and, um, you know, help our mood be better. And so it's just a binging is a natural response to restriction. And people um, seem to feel a little bit less shame when you frame it that way. Um, also, people with eating disorders didn't want an eating disorder. They didn't want their life to be dominated by this, um, you know, condition they have. So uh, we really work with shame. In general, we try to address any of the psychological factors that come along with eating disorders, which can be pretty significant, including depressive symptoms and even suicidal thoughts. Which is why it's so important. We know that we can get treatment and where to go to get treatment when we start to see symptoms of eating disorders in our friends' lives, our loved ones, our family members, or in our own lives. I wanted to, to kind of credit a blog post that you have up on the University of Utah Healthcare's uh, webpage. 
It's called eating disorders, a complex yet treatable disease. And one of the questions on that blog post is, is there a distinct cause of eating disorders? And it makes a connection between dieting and the development of eating disorders. Can you tell us more about that? Correct. Mm -hmm. Yes. So usually some type of a weight loss or a weight loss mentality is what kind of pushes someone over the edge. So maybe they have a genetic susceptibility, uh, like kind of we talked about, like food, their body can override their desire to eat or, uh, can you know, their body becomes kind of adverse to how food looks or smells or tastes. Um, and they decide to diet, like, you know, get, get rid of those five pounds right before spring break, right? That's a real common uh, thing that people tell me. And and then all of a sudden, before they know it, they're, they're cutting out increasing amounts of food. Um, foods are becoming bad or good, um, off limits, and associated with a sense of shame if they kind of break those food rules. Um, there are some people who kind of feel this, like, moral sense of superiority if they're able to eat, you know, quote, clean or uh, stay away from some of those uh, quote, good or bad foods. And so um, we definitely see a big distinction with someone who just uh, can engage in, you know, it, like kind of quick restriction and then kind of go back to their regular pattern of eating versus someone with an eating disorder starts a period of restriction and is never able to recover on their own. Uh, you know, I'm also curious, a lot of diseases, whether it be cancer or whether it be depression, the earlier you can identify that this disease is beginning to affect uh, the life of a loved one or yourself, the earlier you can get treatment, the better prognosis, the easier it is for you to recover. Are eating disorders similar? Is it important for us to recognize early on when we start seeing the symptoms of eating disorder to seek out treatment uh, as early as possible? Absolutely. So eating disorders are especially important diseases to inter inter um, intervene on as soon as possible, as soon as you recognize the symptoms in yourself or someone else. Because the longer the time you have the eating disorder, uh, the more challenging the recovery period is. It's not that it's not completely possible um, and that you can recover. It's just that over time, your brain changes the longer that you're having uh, changes in your food and weight. And also, the more sacrifices, in a way, you make in your life to accommodate that eating disorder. So maybe you start, you know, kind of withdrawing from social circles and friends because a lot of our you know, activities are food related, right? So if some suddenly you're not meeting people for dinner or coffee or you, you're not, you know, joining that coworker group for a surprise piece of cake, like that interferes with your social uh, connections. And then also over time, if you're malnourished, you know, you're not able to focus as well. Um, if a lot of your thoughts are turned towards your weight and shape, maybe your job performance is declining, your your emotional relationships, romantic relationships are suffering. So definitely early intervention. The statistics are great that we can help you have full recovery. The longer the eating disorder goes unchecked, the harder it is. Well, let's talk about treatment. So first from the vantage point of uh, the messages. Uh, as soon as we spot the eating disorder uh, beginning, seek out treatment early. But what do we do in that relationship? So we have a, a teenager or a, a young child and we're concerned about, we have a friend. How do we have that conversation about our concern for them? Yeah, so, uh, you know, if we have a young child, our treatments are a little bit different. Uh, we really recommend that you just kind of uh, take back over the control of your child's feeding and eating um, and you kind of, you know, 
basically you force them to eat. People used to think that wasn't the right thing, and now we know it's absolutely essential to force your child to eat if you're noticing that they are developing the eating disorder. Um, and you provide them love and support, um, but, and you you absolutely make sure that the body is nourished. If someone's a, a young adult or a teen, that's where it's a little bit more challenging, right? Or if it's a, an, a just, you know, a, a colleague of yours, you have to start with, concern messages. So, you know, I care about you, I'm concerned. And then we talk then then talk about the behaviors you you observe. So hey, I've noticed that your your lunches look a lot smaller. Um, I've noticed that you're, you know, turning me down a lot for family dinners like we used to do. Um, I noticed that your 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 demeanor is changing. You seem quieter, more withdrawn. Um, I'm worried about you. So observe their behaviors, comment on them in a very like non-shaming, you know, neutral, loving way, um, and then talking about your worries for them, and ask, and then ask questions. You know, is this something you've noticed? Are you worried about it? How are you feeling? Those open-ended questions that allows them to kind yeah. of express their their feelings to someone who is a safe listener, who is not judging them or, or being critical. And I want to thank you for your interview, uh, Dr. Kristen Francis, too, because you're helping us have those conversations with more compassion when we understand that because of the nature of eating disorders, really directing the actions of the patient, it helps us understand that they might be struggling from a sense of a lack of control. Absolute loss of control. People do not want to have eating disorders. Um, It's very hard for them when people say, like, I don't understand why can't you just eat? Like, food is delicious. You know, and they may say yes, and and yet I can't, and I'm terrified of, of the associated weight gain, and I feel like I can't eat. I, I'm, I feel like I'm completely going to lose control if I try to eat, and um, people are miserable. So let's talk about treatment, because I know at Huntsman Mental Health Institute, you have many different ways that people can reach out and get support. So if we're ready to reach out for help, what do we do? So the first thing to do is always contact your doctor, I think. You know, you can definitely do online reading. There's a ton of resources out there. Um, There's great websites that are very informational and help reduce the stigma um, and help you more like, you know, feel more likely to reach out. But but just talking to your primary care doctor is a great place to start. Um, From there, they can definitely refer you to a psychiatrist who is a medical physician who specializes in mental health, and they can um, kind of walk you through all the different signs and symptoms uh, to see if you have an eating disorder and set you up with um, the right therapist or if you need more intensive uh, supervision like an outpatient program where your meals are supervised um, or even an inpatient stay or, or what we call a residential longer term stay uh, where your meals are supervised and you have uh, frequent access to, to therapy and healthcare professionals. Um, those are all resources that your psychiatrist Uh, can help you navigate. Um, Additionally, some people, actually quite a few people with eating disorders get to a stage where uh, they feel like life isn't worth living and that maybe they're a burden and that the world would be um, better without them. And and those thoughts are are not, those are not true reflections of of you. And that that is the eating disorder and and the effects of starvation. So psychiatrists are particularly skilled at recognizing those um, symptoms, um, asking the right questions to help get to them, and then giving you the right treatment if you need emergency kind of safety stabilization. And in your blog, you talk about there's real hope for healing and recovering from eating disorders. 
Absolutely. Well, help us understand a little bit more about that. What does that treatment look like? Is it, is it a few weeks of appointments or longer term care? So most people, um, unfortunately, do not seek support for their eating disorder until it's really causing problems. And so I'm going to say that, truthfully, you have at least a few months of recovery ahead of you. Um, And if your eating disorder is really significantly um, impacting your everyday life, you might have more like six months. And that can be anywhere from, you know, meeting with a therapist and a dietitian um, once a week Um, to being in an intensive outpatient program for four to six weeks where, again, they they monitor your meals, they weigh you, um, they have a therapist there for you. Um, So, But that's really what you're looking at more than than just a few visits. By the way, for those who've just joined us, this is uh, the psychiatrist, Dr. Kristen Francis, who does just a terrific job at Huntsman Mental Health Institute. And her blog addresses eating disorders. And there is a point that I think is so important. It says eating disorders are life-threatening mental illnesses and should be treated as such. And I'm going to go back to that, you know, the parallel that if we saw a tumor growing, right, large in our body, We would seek immediate. So it's that kind of response that when we see, regardless of the age, whether we're talking about a young teenager or a young adult, whether it's male or female, um, as soon as you're seeing some of those signs, treat it like a life threatening mental illness, get in to see the doctor and seek out psychiatric support. I love that. Exactly. There is no shame in developing, you know, type one diabetes where you need insulin and you have, you know, to seek emergent uh, medical care. Same with an eating disorder. You didn't, you didn't set out to have your life, you know, hijacked by this. And it is a biologic condition that you need treatment for um, as soon as possible to get your life back. And again, recovery is completely within your reach. You know, this is this is a treatable condition. Um, and we are here to help. And part of that help are the resources that you suggest, right? We can get them at the Huntsman Mental Health Institute. I see some listed on your blog. Again, that's titled Eating Disorders, a Complex Yet Treatable Disease. And and I think that's very compassionate because, Kristen, you've talked about how eating disorders are a secret disease. So if someone hasn't shared yet the struggles that they're having, seeking out these online resources and learning more about the eating disorder might be that first step of healing? I think that is a great place to start. There's There are such informational websites uh, that can help you better understand what you're going through and to give you um, a sense that you're not alone, that there's there's no place for shame in this and that there's only place for support and encouragement. So online is a great place to start. You know, Dr. Francis, earlier you said nobody wants an eating disorder. Nobody is choosing that. Is there a role of fault on society? I mean, are are there still messages in our society that are playing a part in the development of these diseases? Absolutely. Yes. You know, you we've all been kind of victim, if anything, to this societal expectation for what a preferred body style is or what we should look like, right, which is uh, not attainable for most people and also not healthy. You know, the health outcomes, um, we talk a lot about BMI, right, as this like uh, this range of what our healthy body should be. But but really, BMI was not designed to be 
looked at for individuals. It was meant to look at populations. And the ranges that we set as physicians, we, we don't even know what we're talking about, to be totally honest. Like the, the BMI range that has the best health outcome is actually the overweight category. So 25 to 30 BMI range has the best health outcomes. It's more dangerous to be underweight than it is to be overweight. And that is just something we don't talk enough about. So, um, again, you know, there there are so many resources out there to help you feel better, um, to get you help, and your physicians will do everything they can. So wonderful. And how do we find the resources or tap into them at the Huntsman Mental Health Institute? Yeah, so just uh, if you go to hmhi.utah.edu, so hmhi.utah.edu.org, there are um, a plethora of resources listed there. Um, We have crisis support services. We have outpatient, inpatient level of care. And we can get you referrals to uh, even kind of a in-between day treatment program, partial hospitalization. So lots of treatment options and lots of hope if we just bring the struggles we're having with the disease out of the darkness and into the light. Absolutely. I often talk about how we try to hold hope for people. And, you know, when they don't have hope for themselves, that we have hope for them. That's beautiful. Dr. Kristen Francis, a psychiatrist with Huntsman Mental Health Institute. Thank you so much for joining us on this week's edition of Utah Weekly Forum. Thank you. Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. She was tear gassed and beaten. Images of thousands desperate to escape Taliban oppression filled our news feeds. More than 80,000 Afghans made it to America. But the story didn't end there. It was very cold. There was no power, no heat. Who would help our newest neighbors? I'm Andrea Smartin. In Stranger Becomes Neighbor, you'll hear the stories of some remarkable refugees who left their homes and their dreams behind, only to start over from zero. Their only possession was three blankets. And you'll meet Americans who stepped up to help them. You want me to come when you deliver your baby. What can one person do? in the face of an international disaster decades in the making. That's Stranger Becomes Neighbor. Find us at kslpodcast.com, follow us on Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen.